this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Harford. Hello, Tim. Hello. And we're going to be talking about Lord Alexander's The Chronicles of Pride. Which, when did you first read those, Tim? Oh, gosh, I must have been a teenager, I think. I'm not sure. They feel like they've been with me the whole time, like The Hobbit. I remember seeing The Black Cauldron when I was a kid. I've not seen that, which is one of the reasons why I still think The Chronicles of Pride are great. I get, yeah, I get the impression because I think The Black Cauldron is, um, you know, taken from the first two books, isn't it? And it's, uh, I don't know how they chopped and changed it, but it was uh, box office. Very thoroughly, I think. Box office bomb, as far as I remember. Yeah, Disney's worst ever movie, I think, is The Reputation. Lloyd Alexander said uh, it didn't really have very much to do with his books. But but he really enjoyed the movie anyway, which is kind of him. <laughs> That's nice of him to say. Yeah, Gergi is, is not the same as well. Uh, all right, well, I think that the way we do this, obviously, is we do a synopsis first. Then we'll talk a bit about themes and what we liked about it. And finally, we'll talk back up onto the role-playing bit. So do you want to give us a synopsis of uh, the first book or... or, or Several of the books. I'm, I'm happy to do all five, really. They're quite brief. They're, they're, they're not big, sprawling books. So the Chronicles of Prydain is the collective name for these five short children's fantasy novels by Lloyd Alexander, written in the 1960s. I suppose this is about the time The Lord of the Rings was really taking off and getting big. And in some ways, it, it feels like a junior version of, of The Lord of the Rings, although there are, some, there are some interesting differences. The first book is The Book of Three, introduces our protagonist, Taron, who is a farm boy. He's, a, he's an assistant pig keeper, dreams of glory in a bucolic setting. Uh, so some very classic themes. He is cared for by a sorcerer called Dalban. And news comes to Dalban uh, that a new enemy has arisen in the land of Prydain, which is a sort of mythical Wales. He's called the Horned King. And uh, Taran, uh, of course, wants to become a warrior and, and meet fame and glory. Uh, the, his charge is the pig, oracular pig, Henwen, with yeah. powers of prophecy, who foretells that the Horned King is coming... Uh, to Caerdalban, where they live, and uh, runs away. And so Taran runs off to try to find uh, the pig, meets up with our um, great hero, Gwydion, who's uh, Prince of, of Prydain, Prince of Don, he's called, uh, who's a generally altogether heroic character. They have many adventures, uh, and in the end, the Horned King is vanquished, and uh, Taran learns that things are not quite as easy as he might have thought. That all takes place fairly briefly. That's a couple of hundred pages. The second book, The Black Cauldron, we find out more uh, about the Horned King's master, Araun, or Araun, uh, the Death Lord, who uh, lives in his kingdom of Anuvin, <clears throat> and who has command of this strange artefact, the Black Cauldron. And he can place the uh, slain bodies of uh, fallen warriors into the Black Cauldron uh, overnight and they will be reincarnated as Cauldron Born who are a terrible enemy because they simply cannot be killed. And um, a, a bold expedition sets off to capture the Cauldron to rescue it from Around's kingdom. Um, but things go awry. Taran ends up meeting um, the, the three fates, Orwen, Ordu and Orgoch, uh, and eventually the Black Cauldron is uh, is destroyed uh, by by somebody sacrificing his life to uh, to destroy it. The Book of Three, the third book, uh, sorry, the Book of Three is the first book. But, you know, you, you can see why I get confused. Yep. The Castle of Lear is the third book. Yep. Um, it takes place on a, a small uh, island uh, nation. Uh, Taran's friend and companion, the Princess Elonwy, is to be married off. Uh, uh, to the, the Prince of uh, Lear. They have various uh, escapades there. It's a little bit more Famous Five in, in its, its feeling. There's a, there's a giant cat, there's a tiny giant, um, there's, there's betrayal, uh, and in the end, the Princess Elonwy is rescued. The fourth book in the series, Taran Wanderer, is, I think, particularly interesting and sticks with people. This is purely Taran 
journeying around Prydain, the kingdom, trying to find out who he is. He he hopes to find that he's in fact noble-born. He was he was an orphan. He was, was left in the care of the wizard Dolben. He hopes he has noble birth, but he, in any case, he wants to find out who he is. And in the background of all this is he realises that he's falling in love with the Princess Elonwy. They're both getting older. They're, they're entering their teenage years. He's got a crush on her. She's a princess. He needs to be a prince. He needs some kind of noble birth. And he has many adventures. He tries his hand at pottery. He tries his hand at weaving, becomes a smith. Uh, and um, in the end, he finds out that there are no easy answers to the question of who you are. And, and whether you're a, a nobleman's son or a sheep farmer's son, or you don't know whose son you are. Uh, in the end, you have to find your own way in life. And all of that makes the final book, I think, all the more resonant. The final book is this great uh, battle against uh, Aron. Um, Aron has struck boldly out of his kingdom, uh, destroyed the uh, the castle of the sons of don destroyed the high king uh, everything seems to be uh, lost but at that moment uh, prince gwydion and taran realize that while aron has taken huge risks and thrown all his strength against them his own kingdom is unguarded and so they can make a counter strike there are bitter sacrifices and uh, and in the end uh, well, spoiler alert, everybody lives happily ever after, or most people live happily ever after. So in, in many ways, it's it's a, a really classic uh, story and not not dissimilar in themes to a, to a book like The Lord of the Rings. Um, I think what makes it special is its economy of style, beautiful, memorable characters, and the fact that he, he doesn't mess around. Things all happen quite quickly. Mm. And you could, you could read the whole, easily read all five books in a week, uh, without devoting hours and hours and hours to doing so. Excellent. Thanks for that. Now, one of the things I think it's worth mentioning before we get into the theme section is uh, the relationship with um, with the Mabinogion. And you know, I've got my copy of the Mabinogion here. It's the translation I've got is the... Um, oh. This is a the Welsh um, mythical cycle. Geoffrey Gantz, yes. Um, and I've got the author's note in the back of the book of three, and he explicitly says, Alexander says, uh, this chronicle of the land of Prydain is not a retelling or retranslation of Welsh mythology. Prydain is not Wales, not entirely at least. The inspiration for it comes from that magnificent land and its legends, but essentially Prydain is a country existing only in the imagination. A few of its inhabitants are drawn from the ancient tales. Gwydion, for example, is a real legendary figure. Aron, the dread lord of Anuvin, comes from the Mabinogion, the classic collection of Welsh legends, though in Prydain he is considerably more villainous. And there is an authentic mythological basis for Aron's cauldron, Henwen the Oracular Pig, the old enchanter Dalbin, and others. However, Tan, the assistant pig keeper, like Elenwy, the red gold of the red gold hair, was born in my own Prydain. Yes, so he's he's influenced by uh, Welsh legends and influenced. Lloyd Alexander is American, um, but he uh, was in Wales during the Second World War. He was he was um, uh, underwent military training in the Welsh hills, and I, and I think the landscape made a big impression on him. So yes, he's drawn he's drawn themes, he's drawn names, um, but this is. Um, yeah, th- this is its own work, uh, and, and the plot lines are certainly uh, Lloyd Alexander's. Although, as people will have guessed from my synopsis, they they follow fairly, fairly familiar uh, themes in in fantasy novels. Yes, and why don't we talk about the themes of um, of the Chronicles of Prydain? One of the things I wanted to say, you know, following on from this relationship to Welsh myth, is Prydain is not mythic Wales. But Prydain is a place which, um, for which the myths of mythic Wales are very real and tangible, and the characters and the, esca- the escapades which are described in the Mabinogion are they are believable and they are 
believed to be, you know, th this is what our ancestors did, this is what our great heroes have done, and these are the great tales about it. And I feel that this is a, uh, this is a particularly important point, this belief in myth and the presentation and, and taking it at face value. Uh, yes, there there is uh, magic and there are magical creatures, uh, although the magic is uh, is often quite subtle. It, it's not like Harry Potter where there's an incantation every other page. It's um, it, it's often there in the background, but it it does come to the fore. Um, there are uh, there are mythical creatures. There are certainly mythical adversaries, and there are there are fairies, uh, and uh, again there. They're there, they're, re they're present reasonably often, but they're not absolutely saturating uh, the pages. Um, and it's mythical in another way, uh, in that there is often a, um, a poetic justice to the way that things work out. There's a neatness. Um, characters disappear and then will, will reappear. Uh, characters who've been thought to be evil will, will be redeemed. Uh, there'll be themes of betrayal. Um, it's not. Um, it's not as messy as uh, a non-mythical book might be. Uh, it, there's less ambiguity. Mm. I think because I've read the book of three most recently, I'd like to pick out some of the themes from that. Sure. And one of the reasons um, I was keen to do, look at Lloyd Alexander is uh, he is one of three authors who have inspired a game which I keep going on about, which is Beyond the Wall. And the whole point about Beyond the Wall is you are young adults, young people on the cusp of, cusp of adulthood, striking out from your village and uh, uh, having adventures in the unknown outside the village and then coming back to the community in the village and forming relationships with one another and growing together. And I got a very, very strong sense of what the authors of Beyond the Wall are thinking about when they looked at the Book of Three. And one of the interesting things, of course, we've got is throughout the Book of Three, we have the formation of a troop of characters. So we have Taran and Eleni. Eleni? Elonwy? Elonwy, I always Elonwy. thought, but I'm, I, I'm willing to take advice on that. Yeah, I, well, let me, Elonwy. Uh, and we have, uh, they of course then come into contact with the Bard, who has been um, given his his magical harp? Yes, the strings of which break whenever that he takes an untruth. Flute of Flam. Yes, he's yeah. a he's a wonderful character. So he's a he's a king of a very very minor kingdom. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe there are shades of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings there, but uh, but really he's he's a bard. He he has this beautiful harp, and he's prone to exaggerate. Uh, he's often, in particular, exaggerates his own uh, bravery. And every time he does so, a string of the harp breaks. He's been given it as a kind of um, as part blessing, part curse by a wise old bard. Uh, and so there's a lot of comic effect. And later in the book, actually, tragic effect from, from, that, uh, from that harp. Um, there's also um, Gurgi, yes. who's our, our um, comedy. He's our scrappy-doo, really, uh, in, in this, although he's... Uh, He's a little more satisfying a character than that. Yeah, and originally he's he, he he's introduced by being a um, uh, a self serving greedy character who only wants the food that the that Taran and um, and and Elonwy uh, can uh, spare for him. Later on, though, uh, just as you're saying about these transformative events where characters can be revealed or, or show hidden depths, he does do that. Uh, throughout the first book, he and he, um, to an extent, he he protects his friends, and he becomes uh, not not only does he become uh, a a redeemed character in the eyes of the reader, um, the relationship between him and Taran improves a great deal as well by the end of the book. Yes, and there are there are various other memorable characters. There's uh, there's Dolly, who is a sort of dwarf stroke elf stroke gnome he he's one of the fair folk mm. who initially appears to be uh, irascible and uh, unhelpful and grumpy and uh, gradually again one realizes it, it's not so much that he grows as a character but it's more that our appreciation of him grows we realize a lot of that's just a front 
um, and he's he's enormously uh, loyal and hugely competent while often pretending to be neither. So these characters have, have basically been, uh, they are initially the Taran uh, Elony and um, Fleur de Femme uh, all meet each other in fairly fairly quick succession on escaping the castle as, as it, um, after um, Taran and Gwydion have been in, have been incarcerated by by Akron the sorceress. Akron the sorceress. Thank you. Yes, uh, and then they meet together quite quickly, and then Gergi appears shortly afterwards, and then it's a series of sort of um, picaresque scenes where they 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 are their end goal is to travel back to the castle and warn them whilst um, whilst dodging the um, the cauldron born of um, the of Lord Aron. but at the same time they all they all complement each other in the way that you'd expect an adventuring party to do but also as a representing a different different perspectives on society I suppose the um, uh, Gurgi is uh, poor and an outcast and li- living on what he can scavenge Taran is low-born but has high aspirations. Alonri is, um, I suppose, relatively high-born, and we know she, she's a princess from later. And yeah. and and so we have a an interesting mix of characters flown thrown together. Yes, I think that the the their relationship with each other. I mean, their their various arguments, particularly between um, Taran and Alonri, who have a fiery uh, relationship. Um, but they all grow as characters, but. I think that that theme of um, of a young person trying to figure out who he is, who she is, is developed, I think, in this series of novels more than any other that I can think of, uh, certainly more than any fantasy novel that I can think of. Uh, in the first book, Taran, the focus is on Taran, although the other characters are strong, and, and um, particularly at Lonwy, uh, but... Taran is our protagonist. We see the world through his eyes. Through the first book, he, he's an idiot. Mm. I mean, he really, he's just a fool. He's constantly making mistakes. He's impetuous. He, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's brave and loyal, but is constantly making uh, very poorly judged decisions. In the second book, he's already somewhat wiser, but is still getting into a lot of trouble. And in particular, he is being provoked by uh, an antagonist, uh, called Elidir, who is a, a, a impoverished noble with a real chip on his shoulder, and he is an, he's the school bully, and he is a very annoying character. We, the reader, are frustrated with him. We don't like him, but he manages to provoke Taran to do various things that Taran should know better, but doesn't. The third book, he's got more maturity uh, uh, yet again, and we're increasingly admiring his competence. In this extraordinary fourth book, there, he self-consciously sets out to try to figure out who he is, what he should be doing, where he came from, who his parents were. Um, it's a very, very powerful book. And in the fifth book, he's a man. And he, um, he very rarely makes a mistake. He has excellent judgment. He's brave. He's courageous. He's also wise, very wise. And we've seen him grow in what is quite a short space of time. It's probably about between the ages of 12 and 16, perhaps. We never quite know. Uh, and over the course of seven or 800 pages, he, he, we've, he's earned this transition. It, it's, it's a very powerful story of, of a young man growing up. Yeah, so this, this theme uh, of character development, I think, is an interesting thing to note in for a if we were looking to then to trans, translate this to a role-playing game i think that's going to be a tremendous challenge to have uh, certainly to have characters start off being incompetent and impetuous and uh, generally rubbing up every rubbing everybody up the wrong way it takes quite a strong role player to do that and uh, it, i have known few people play characters like that but it is I think it'd be quite difficult to replicate yes although it would be very interesting to try and that, and I think there's nothing you don't need to do anything clever with the game mechanics I think a very 
simple. You could do this in Dungeons and Dragons, to be honest. I mean, you don't you don't need a, um, a, a modern role playing game or a clever set of rules to do this. It, it is dependent on the player and the or, social or, contract between the players. Yes, um, but it, it it could be done. And in fact, it, I mean, in some ways, this is what this is what Dungeons and Dragons was always supposed to be. Right, you start off at level one. And you're you're a noob. You don't know anything. And then you progress level five, level ten, level twenty. But of course, what we tend to see in these games is you progress in terms of uh, your skills, your hit points, your wealth, uh, your status, the spells you have access to. But you don't actually become a smarter or wiser or kinder person. And perhaps um, just taking note of that and reflecting on that would would be an important first step for any group because it, i mean it is it, it's what makes this book or this series of books so special i think because uh, it's certainly not the originality of the uh, of the plot which is very straightforward and, and familiar well, there are there are some role playing examples of games which they've been designed that the characters grow in certain ways you mentioned D&D um, the uh, the classic red box D and D, the basic expert companion that, that those um, five boxes, master and, and immortals, uh, those were designed so that you were an individual progressing up through the levels up till ninth level, which was supposedly name level, and then you acquired uh, land and title and responsibility. Now, of course, if you're playing that as just a Yes, this is another thing that I more power that I've gained. That's um, a certain that that is a way to look at it in a very mercenary fashion. Uh, but at the same time, the idea is these characters become part of the landscape and important figures in their own right, and therefore have certain responsibilities. I think what matters in that case is how the the GM puts responsibility upon them and how they respond to it and how they feel, whether they feel ownership of the world. Yes. I mean, one interesting thing about uh, Taran Wander in particular is that while there are these other uh, very memorable characters and the friendships are quite strong and the, di- the dialogue, the dynamic between them is is um, is engaging, Taran Wanderer, he's, he's by himself. He's meeting... Uh, in a what in a gaming context would be NPCs. He's meeting this particular cast of characters who were introduced in that book, often for a chapter or two, and then he moves on. I mean, there is that sort of set that episodic sense of a hero's journey, um, and and he learns a lesson from each person that he meets. Now, I suppose the the just to, to give you an example, he trains um, as a blacksmith for a while, one of the great blacksmiths of Prydane. And he makes his own sword. And one of the lessons he's taught is that you know, life is like a forge. You know, it it um, it's a it's a it's a brutal experience. You know, you 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 get burned, you get but uh, you get battle scarred. But in the end, um, you know, you you become well tempered and strong through that that intense process. Um, he then uh, meets a weaver woman. And he learns to weave his own cloak, and she tells him that life. Is, is a loom and you, it's all about incorporating these different elements and finding a pattern in what might seem to be just a mad tangle and and so you've got these um, uh, these rather pithy commentaries on the nature of life it's quite zen in some ways um, but it's it's all happening with just a single player and, and I have from time to time going way back back to being a teenager played games where there's just there's just two people in the room. There's there's the referee and the player, and I wouldn't want to do too many games like that. But it can be a very powerful dynamic with just the two of you. Yeah, it's kind of the that, that's what um, I have thought about games where you have a forced downtime mechanic, uh, and you know, with uh, let's say your characters live in a settlement, and for whatever reason they strike forth from that settlement, go on adventures, plunder dungeons, and then come back. And so you have an adventure phase, but then you have a domestic phase coming back where they connect with the people who are back home, uh, who are important to them. And, and then you have those relationships which 
could be played out or could just be a part of exposition. Um, I have also done solo games, but mostly that has been as a prelude. So this famous you know, white wolf uh, vampire preluding, the idea is that you all you play one on one with the with the games master, and they will take you through your embrace, etc., etc. Which oh yeah, it was fun to do when I was twenty and a goth. Uh, but it's uh, wasn't everything fun when you were twenty and a goth. But yes, yes the, but, exactly. But the power of that idea, although I mean, yeah, I think it was quite eye opening at the time. Um, these days we're we're all jaded, and it all feels a bit cliched, and and all of that vampire stuff. But there is a power there in introducing a character where the where the character is the the total focus of the game just got the 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 referee and the player focusing on the character and how that character came to be uh, who he is or who she is um so uh, one thing that might be worth exploring is is to give a little bit more space to that before the characters join each other as a gaming group. Of course, it doesn't have to be solo. You could have two players at a time in, in introducing them as a pair. Another way of doing it would be to say, we're going to you know, have a game where you are all teenage idiots. And defi- and, and, and you, you're, you're impetuous, you're making mistakes, you don't have a lot of skills. You know, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the Merry and Pippin stage of, of this. And then, um, and then we will take you off on these solo quests and then we'll come back later in the campaign and you're not the same people anymore you've grown up yeah you see i I ran a game like that and everyone died there is that risk no there is a problem that that was uh that was lamentation of the flame princess where they're being bombarded by uh sentient spells and uh which um crawled into their brains and ate them Uh, anyway that's kind of a different different uh, thing one of the things i wanted to talk about is the um imagery in the uh, in in prydain and the particularly the idea of the cauldron born which are possibly one of the most menacing kinds of monsters i can think of simply because they don't say anything yes they're they're really threatening so um lloyd alexander's quite minimalist with his supernatural foes really only three uh the the occasional evil sorcerer uh but it's the cauldron born the huntsman and the gwythaints uh the gwythaints are these strange leathery bat-like bird-like creatures that are spies and but also physically dangerous could swoop down and tear you to shreds and they've they've come about because they've been basically abused since birth yes and there's uh there's an interesting episode uh, where um taran uh, heals a gwythaint and uh is warned not to do it because it, it will betray him uh, and it seems that he it has betrayed him but then later on much later on uh, uh, it recognizes him and saves his life so uh, we can come back to that kind of theme uh, later but so there's the gwythaint the huntsmen, who are a very engaging and, and frightening opponent, they hunt in bands of seven. Uh, they're hated and feared by animals. And if you kill a huntsman, the other six huntsmen gain his strength. And then you kill another huntsman, the other five huntsmen gain his strength. And various ways you might try and play that mechanic, but effectively it means that they they just get worse and worse. You kill a few and and the rest are really superhuman. And the worst of all, as you say, the cauldron born. The cauldron born have, uh, were dead men who were placed into the black cauldron and resurrected as these sort of zombies who are have this blank stare. They say nothing. They, they get weaker the further away from Aron's kingdom they get. That's really their only weakness. Uh, they're simply unkillable. And that's really driven home very early on in the books where Gwydion, who's our heroic figure that Taran looks up to, who just seems to be enormously competent in every possible way, a great fighter, great swordsman, wise leader. He has every merit you could imagine. 
he um, goes toe to toe with a cauldron born and, and promptly loses because how can you how can you beat something that cannot be killed? And the only reason he fights the cauldron born is to give Taran time to escape. Uh, so this is what what we're up against, and Aron's got an entire army of them, but he unleashes them with caution. But I have, from time to time, used Cauldron Born as an opponent uh, in in a game, just playing um, playing in Dave Morris's World of Legend, which is uh, just a straightforward um, classical fantasy game, spooky elves, goblins, uh, and the Cauldron Born fit right in, and they are always a terrifying opponent. And then there's the weird thing is there's there's nothing to it. They're just you just can't kill them. They don't say anything. And they just keep coming. They just keep they coming. Are, they are hostile. They can't be reasoned with. Yeah. I suppose you, you can you can sneak around them, uh, or flee. Yeah, I mean, there's. Some, I suppose there's. Yeah, there's something of the Terminator uh, about that. Um, yeah, and one of the things I'm interested in this the the, the distance from Iran and Anuvin uh, is an interesting thing because uh, Anuvin is um, now. It, I, I believe the root of that is possibly Anun, the uh, a a you know, the magical land that is separate from the real land. Yeah. Um, and it's just another kingdom effectively here, but it's sort of a, I, I, I get the impression it's a blighted place of, of horror and death. Yes, we don't see much of it in, uh, in the novels. We, it's, it's occasionally um, uh, breached, uh, or at least the, the, the borders are, are breached. It, in my mind, it's always been a little bit like Mordor yeah. in, in Lord of the Rings. And in fact, Except it's scarier because they know, you know, they don't go there. They never, well, they never get in. Um, but the um, there's an interesting sense of scale in these books. Uh, it's it is sort of like Wales, although not quite Wales, as Lloyd Alexander says. It's sort of Walesish. You can you you don't quest for a year crossing Wales. You know, you've got a horse. You can get across Wales in a, in two or three days. And there there is this sense that everything is taking place on quite a small scale you know you at most you're going to be traveling two weeks to get anywhere um and that that is i think very energizing for the books and it's worth bearing in mind for anyone who wants wants to run one of these uh lord of the ringsy games the fact that he's that lloyd alexander's taken all of these epic themes from tolkien and just shrunk everything to this manageable scale it just things just happen a lot more quickly and you don't have this kind of oh and then after six more months of marching they fight forget all that none, none of that matters and there are several points in the book where the um time is of the essence and the, there's this feeling oh we've spotted there is an attack in progress we need to get past the vanguard of the army that is about to attack and bring warning to the city that is going to be attacked uh, in the final book the High King, the Cauldron Born have destroyed uh, the, the you know the good guys' castle, and they're marching back to Anuvin. Can they be turned aside? Can Anuvin be attacked before they uh, they get back to defend it? And it's, again, there's this race against time, and it's all happening within the course of um, thirty six hours, forty eight hours. And that there's a real energy there. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing because um, there was one. I remember there was, there was a blogger who wrote about um, Dungeons and Dragons and trying to understand, you know, why you have these huge, massive wildernesses in the in the um, uh, source materials where hex after hex, and you supposedly the characters will wander from place to place and they'll never be in the same place twice and vast distances. And they said, well, yes, and it's written from an American mindset of a you know, vast open spaces and a lot of space between communities um, and the thing that I that I think the problem that, that I have with imagining a, a game in Middle Earth or in a D&D type game is the sense of scale so you have that shrunk down scale it is actually easier for the players to envisage the entire map Yes, I remember there was um, one of the society games was um, Romans versus Celtic gods in uh, in Britain. They used a map of Britain, and of course the the that scale is um, 
uh, it's we're familiar with what that map looks like and we're also familiar with the distances so we've got a pretty good idea about what it means to move from place to place and and take certain parts of the territories and the sense of scale there I think it's the same sort of thing yes I think anybody who who wanted to do a very uh, straightforward classical role-playing game with you know some swords and some spells and and wanted to make it a bit Lord of the Ringsy, but was just finding Middle Earth unwieldy. Uh, Prydain is the perfect place. It's it's very like Middle Earth, except that the scale is so much more conducive to um, a role playing experience. The cast of characters is much more manageable. Uh, both our heroes, but also the people they meet. Um, the scale is more manageable. The pacing is more manageable. Things happen more quickly. Um, it's. Uh, there's something that that it just works much better for the purposes of someone who wants to to run that kind of game. Actually, I wanted to talk about the 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 cast of characters as well. The the this wider world beyond our small band. Sure, go ahead. Because I think that's that's an interesting theme. There's a real neatness about Lloyd Alexander's writing. He's a great writer, by the way. It's very simple he doesn't waste words Agreed. yeah he just yeah very good there's an economy of style there and description um he's a master of of the craft but he um it's very rare for him to introduce a character who we then don't see again and the the main example that i can think of is is there's a there's a character who is killed in the second book um he's introduced for a couple of chapters we really like him and then he dies um uh heroically but generally, you will come back and you'll see these people again. Maybe not again and again and again like a soap opera, but there'll be somebody introduced in book two and you'll think you've seen the last of them and back they pop up in book five, potentially to play quite a critical role. And, and there's, there's often, um, there's not just that tightness that you, you see the characters again, but there, there are often themes of justice. As someone who's committed a great betrayal um, is redeemed. Or somebody who's committed a great betrayal gets her comeuppance, um, or someone who um, you know that they've been done a favour and they didn't pay that favour back, and yet and finally the favour repays itself. There's, there's this sense that everything is working um, working out very neatly. Now, for a role playing game, that's potentially problematic because it requires a heavy hand on the plot which most role players would say, well, no, we want the plot to emerge. Um, but there are, there, are, um, there are game mechanics that you could introduce in order to, to you know, ideas of karma and so on, fate points. Or alternatively, just as the game master, you could learn something from Lloyd Alexander's style, which is don't just make up some character um, of, you know, just, oh, you, you just happen to meet this guy, um, pull the name out of uh, your back pocket uh, describe the person and then forget all about them. Make a note, write this character down, bring that person back next session or in 10 sessions time or in a year's time. And the world will seem so much richer and more satisfying because it has that continuity in it. It'll also be, uh, there will be a, a certain amount of things coming back to the characters and there'll be an extended group of characters who will all interact with one another. Um, I remember there was there was uh, in the fantasy love role playing in the early nineties in the university. There was there's an anecdote about um, that they used to have sort of fire and forget adventures where you go off an adventure, um, fight, do a number of scenes, fight the evil character at the end, and then that would be the end. And there was no continuity, and it was a revelation when suddenly the black wizard who had fled in an earlier episode turned up again. And then suddenly they have this con continuity of the villain and they, they acquired more villains who would then pop up again. And, and of course, we're talking about a shared world that's been run by several GMs and played by several players. And yet they have this shared cast of non-player characters as well as, as, well as player characters. I think um, in LARP it makes more sense, particularly because you will have a, an entourage of characters who will all know each other because they'll also all know that, yes, now it's my turn to go out this week and I'll be going out with these people, which is, um, I suppose that's a separate thing, which is troop-style play, which is maybe also worth mentioning in this context. 
Yeah. Uh, but I think, yes, just that continuity of reusing NPCs and having them turn up regularly is an interesting thing. Yes. I mean, it's... Uh, Lloyd Alexander does it again and again, um, sometimes in small ways. For example, the, the Gwythaint that I mentioned, Taran uh, discovers this injured bird. Uh, it, it, should, it should be evil. He risks a lot. He heals it. It seems to betray him. But then, much, much later, uh, everything works out. Um, but um, it, it's, you know, it, it is a constant theme of, of the work. One of the uh, more memorable episodes is in book four. One of the people he meets, he's, he's going on his adventures. He's learning lessons about life. He meets um, a fellow called uh, Lucky Lonio. And Lucky Lonio uh, is just just seems to be blessed. He hasn't got any money. He's got a big family. And yet somehow he's constantly, whatever he needs, is coming along. Uh, he finds food. He, uh, or they, they, um, they rig up a way to grind corn with this bit of driftwood that came down from the um, uh, came down the river. And they found this stone. And, he, and he's just improvising everything. And, and of course, Taran realizes this is, this is a man who he makes his own luck. So he's, he's talking about how blessed he is, but actually what he's doing is paying attention, being grateful, improvising, uh, living by his wits. And so there's a real life lesson. And then Lonio is killed in the fifth book. Um, we don't even see him die. We just see Taran discovers his body after a battle and his luck's run out. And it's such a powerful moment because we really love that guy and we know what his kids are like. And we know how clever he was, and we know how grateful he was for what life threw at him, and the fact that he just called himself you know, the luckiest man alive, and now he's dead because of this brutal war that's broken out. That sort of touch—it's quite a simple thing, as opposed to just being some random person with a wearing a red T-shirt who you introduced five minutes ago. Make it works much better. Yeah. There's one other thing that I think is really worth exploring. That is a theme that comes up again and again in, in the books, which is that of sacrifice. And very often our characters, particularly Taron, but other characters, have to give something up. And, it, and it, it, you really feel that it's costly to them to, to do so. Um, one uh, example in the second book, uh, Taron has acquired a magical brooch, which gives him wisdom and foresight and visions and he just for the first time in his life he feels that he's he's become that competent charismatic leader that he always wanted to be uh, but before long he has to give it up because it, the the three fates who have the black cauldron are only willing to exchange it for um uh for, for something of value um the most Memorable example of this in mild spoiler alert in the fifth book, Flew de Flamme, the Bard. We've discussed this harp, which to great comic effect is constantly, um, the strings are snapping whenever he exaggerates. But he's really, he's grown to love this harp. And at a moment where they're absolutely desperate um, in the winter, they're all freezing to death. And the last bit of firewood is is burning low. Uh, Flew de Flamme picks up this harp, which has been with him the entire five books, snaps it over his knees and burns burns the harp. And, and people are telling me he's, he's a fool. It's only going to give him two, two minutes more heat anyway. We're all going to die anyway. Why, why make the sacrifice? But he burns the harp and the harp burns all night uh, and beautiful music emanates from the fire. And, it, and at the end, all that's left is a single uh, curled golden harp string. It was a beautiful moment, beautiful piece of writing. But the, the focus is that this man gave up what was most important to him in the world for his friends. And that's, I think, a thing that's well worth exploring in a game. Because we don't often ask players, we don't often ask characters to give something up. You know, they, they undergo challenges... Maybe they get touched by a white and they get a level drained from them or they acquire an injury. 
But we don't often say, you, know, you, you must make this choice. You want this thing, you have to give this other thing up, and you really want this other thing. It's a really simple... Uh, it's, I mean, it's part of life. Life is full of these decisions. But role-playing games are generally not full of these decisions. We generally feel well, we, can, we can have it all. Indeed. Well, shall we talk about role-playing games? Are you done with themes? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Based on, on, on what you've just... Uh, yeah, the point you've just made about sacrifice and giving things up. Some of the newer role-playing games, like the, the Powered by the Apocalypse games, for example, um, they do achieve that to a certain... They can achieve that to a certain extent by the way that they use moves where the GM is prompted to take things away from the characters or tell them consequences and then ask them, well, what do you do in this in this circumstance? So I think that sort of thing can be mechanically prompted. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, all all I think that the Power by the Apocalypse games are doing is really giving a, a laundry list of actions that anyone with experience would do anyway. Yeah. And so you have to actually be prepared to push the players to give something up. But also you have to have players who recognise the value of what they have and are in a position to make that sacrifice. Yeah, so I I think that's that's um, again it comes down to a social contract rather than uh, any particular element of game design. Yes, I think it comes to um, yeah, it's partly about mature role playing and people understanding that this is the this is the way the game is going to work. Um, but it comes down to that thing that I emphasised about uh, record keeping and continuity and this this idea that the things persist through time and have an impact on the game again and again. So you've got your, whatever, you've got your magic sort of plus one. It's not just a, a thing that makes it easier for you to kill orcs. It, it, this is noted, it's, this blade is remarked upon. Um, people people envy you, people compliment you on the blade. Um, somebody steals it from you, you manage to get it back. It, uh, the, the plot points revolve around this, this weapon. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's a situation where you face a choice, and if you sacrifice this blade, perhaps you can get something else that you need. Perhaps you can save the life of a friend. Um, maybe it's something as simple as the the, the fairy king demands it, but uh, maybe it, it's more um, it's more spontaneous. You 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 see this opportunity, but the point is, as you say, if, if if the um, if people don't realise that the thing is valuable in the first place, it's not very interesting to ask them to give it up. Um, but you you don't just sort of sit there saying, well, you must understand your plus one sword is valuable. It's it's got to emerge in play again and again, and and then it will have that value and it will be recognised. And that point about emergence is we're talking uh, if if we're comparing it to something like um, uh, like the Chronicles of five books over years of time where the characters grow realistically what the way that would happen for most players is we'd be talking about campaigns that last years and with a group of players who know each other well but also know each other's characters well and therefore those things that are of value to characters become recognizable motifs and that's how they acquire the value the question is how often i'm so what I was thinking was when we were saying that is I am sure that there are plenty of groups who've played, you know, they've got a long-standing fantasy campaign or whatever, yeah. and they do have these motifs and these things of value that are the, the signature objects, the, you know, my amulet, their cloak, uh, the, my lyre or whatever, that um, that have these uh, this, this amount of weight in them. It's not that... But, with as we're getting older and we have less time to play, certainly starting off a new campaign, it's very difficult to accelerate oneself um, into sort of suddenly we we are all uh, we have the depth of feeling that that we would acquire over several years about each other's characters and we understand the significance of the things that they're carrying with them and what they're giving up when they say they're giving something up. Yeah, and I think that's a consequence of us getting old. Yeah, uh, although. I've- of course, not all Fictoplasm podcast listeners will be old. Some, some of you may be young. Who? Let's hope so. Um, decades of gaming ahead of you. Um, in, in my own group, uh, we have um, 
yeah, we don't get to play as often as I would like. Um, I, in particular, don't get to play as often as I would like because the group is based in London and I'm based in Oxford. Um, but we, we will go back to, um, to familiar characters. So, for example, uh, I'm currently preparing a, an all-day special, probably about a six- or seven-hour game, um, with a group of characters that were first introduced in 1998. We had a very satisfying game, a short campaign, lasted about nine months, I think, 98, 99, campaign finished, and everybody wanted a little bit more. And so from time to time, every year or two, bring those characters back, and there's a new adventure for them. And that works, that works well. But the challenge I have as, as the game master of that game, which I don't, I have to say, I don't often rise to, I should, I should try and rise to it more often, is to get that continuity. There's continuity of characters, but the continuity of world, the continuity of the bad guys, the continuity of the non-player characters is much harder to maintain because that requires record keeping from me and, you know, I'm, I'm too busy keeping, you know, receipts and tax records and things like that to keep role-playing game records but that's what I should be doing and when I read Lloyd Alexander it reminds me that that's what I should be doing yeah and I'm I'm uh, in a slightly different situation in terms of games in that everything I play is short term and uh, I haven't run a long-term game probably since I ran Department V mm-hmm. um, or you know Glory came after that but so when, when was this? This okay. would be sort of the late 90s and early noughties. Yeah. And then since then, it's been... Um, I ran Dreadful Secrets of Candlewick Manor, which was... Uh, which is... Um, you said there were Fictoplasm listeners who were born in 1999, I'm sure. Well, so well possibly. Now, yeah, exactly. just admiring our venerable wisdom. Well, mm. the, the, the point is that um, I, th- I think that, yes, having these recurrent characters is an interesting thing. This, so let's play about this idea about recurrence. Let's say that you don't have the benefit of years of um, you know, real-world contacts who, um, and players, friends, who have also played in one, your one game that you can come back to with its anecdotes and uh, fond memories, etc., etc., what what else can you do? The um, one of the things I'm thinking about is you have a one of the things I like is it is cross genre stuff and um, also um, transposition of characters into other worlds and other settings. Mm-hmm. So this persistence of villainous characters who are iconic but say in a totally different setting is an option, and that at least. It may not get the, uh, it, it may not have the same effect, but it does give you the sort of the recognition beat as as um, this this uh, this familiarity, this feeling that oh yes, I recognise that, and therefore I have an emotional stake in what was happening, which I don't have, didn't have before. Yeah, you got that. You got that shortcut. That that can certainly work. The other thing that that it occurs to me, I mean, generally when I, when I read Lloyd Alexander's um, books, I always think to myself, oh. It, Basically, this is just encouraging me to do exactly what I already do, only much, much better. Because it is so classical, it's so simple, and all the themes are very familiar. There's nothing radical about these books, they're just, except they're just radically good. Very, very well executed. So <clears throat> one thing it makes me think is, uh, you, could, you could compress this campaign. We've already talked about how Pride Ain is like a compressed version of Middle Earth. It's just a tight, tighter... Um, scale, it, it, uh, everything happens more quickly, you have a smaller cast of characters, there's just not, not a word wasted. You could do the same thing with a, with a role-playing campaign. So you could say, rather than just rolling up your first level characters and then just letting the whole thing sprawl out to 30th level or whatever, years and years and years of mostly formless plots, you could say, alright, I'm going to run this game in three, uh, um, three chunks and each chunk is going to take place in the course of you know, six or seven sessions, um, or, or whatever. I mean, maybe maybe two or three sessions. But uh, there'll be um, the characters of adolescence, the characters are growing up, the characters are full-grown men and women. Um, there's that development between them, 
in each um, mini campaign, we have a clearly defined foe, foe, a clearly defined challenge. We'll wrap it all up and then there'll be a pause and some progress and then we'll come back. And just the sense of the whole thing, or, I mean, the, 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 the other obvious model is the um, is the mini series, right? The box set, like box yeah. series is season one, season two, season three. And Absolutely, you're done. yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> that sense, of, and again, that sense of of plotting and of character continuity, and of not messing around too much. It's it sprawls more than a movie, but it it sprawls a lot less than a soap opera, and I think that's quite an appealing scale to aim for. That often we. We miss in games. We're either going for the the one hit wonder single session, or something completely open ended and formless. And I think the, the the that middle ground is quite appealing. One of the other things I wanted to talk about because we were talking about um, games that are designed with a first of all a recurrence of characters, and secondly a um, growth. Uh, I mentioned uh, basic D and D with this idea that you advance to name level and then really what happens is your horizons expand. Yeah. So initially you're going down into dungeons, a very small number of people you deal with. Yeah. As you get more powerful, you're probably dealing, you know, let's say you have recurrent characters. These NPCs have grown with you and suddenly rather than being just characters you've met on the way to having your adventures, they become political figures and you become a political figure. And then, of course, your your horizons are um, focused on a land, and then you start focusing on other countries. And but you can still have these other non-player characters turning up at the same time. Yeah. Uh, D and D was designed like that. Now the question is how successful it, it is, but definitely it would be quite simple to have these recurrent characters turn up and reinforce that. Yes, you, one, could, you could certainly do that. One of the, a couple of the games, there's um, Pendragon, which of course has a, it's, it's a dynastic Arthurian role-playing game where you go through, you have summer seasons and winter seasons, and part of it is about, you know, you go on quests as a, uh, as a knight, um, and you, but you also have your, uh, you also have your territory, which you, you, are growing your estate and growing your dynasty. The third one I wanted to mention, and that's this is really to do with the recurrence of characters, is Ars Magica. Mm, yeah, simply, it did occur to me, yeah. Simply because of troop-style play. Because the way that that's supposed to work is you have a cabal of mages and they're all sort of doing the things in their mage towers, but of course they're all academics. They don't have time to go on adventuring. And the way you're supposed to play it is... You have a whole load of commoners who are supporting cast. And most of the time you have one magician going out for whatever reason they have to go out and venture beyond the walls of their settlement, um, but supported by a bunch of other characters. And of course then you've got a character who which you, you, you've got a living community which is all played by the other players. So that has always appealed to me and I've oh. never had time to do it. No, I've never played it. I've read some Ars Magica um supplements and really enjoyed them so yeah you've got a much richer set of npcs because actually all the npcs were at some stage pcs a player inhabited all of these characters and so yeah there's a there's definitely a payoff from that um, you could also do it i mean really almost any uh role-playing system could cope with it but um if you wanted this sort of development uh in um in a kind of fairly generic system like gurps gurps is the obvious you know, purely generic, very flexible, points-based system. You, you could think about if you you um, you start with characters who have uh, certain mental disadvantages. Uh, in, you know, they're impetuous, they're they're they're, they're impulsive, they're overconfident. These sorts of um, mental disadvantages of youth, and then um, you say, okay, well, we play we play six sessions, and uh, and that's. You know, series one of our campaign. Now you've all grown up a bit. You're going to come back two years later, um, pay off ten or fifteen points worth of these mental disadvantages. You're not overconfident anymore. You've learnt school of hard knocks. Um, get yourself ten points worth of allies or contacts or status or wealth. And the idea that it's the same character, but they've they've advanced. Um, and there's a, it's discontinuous. It, this didn't happen through years and years and years of, of uh, formless playing. 
we took a break. You're back for se- for season two, and you've grown up, and your character's developed in the following way. And you can do that several at several stages. In a way, D and D had it with the with the the levels, but of course, they never quite had the effect that was that uh, we're talking about. But you could you could do it if you had the focus on it on on that mechanic. There are other games that um, you could certainly leverage a. Uh, character change um, unknown armies for example if you want to talk about a horror game that uh, uh, an, uh, an urban fantasy horror game that has uh, a number of ways a character can change psychologically and then they can either become uh, damaged by what they see or they can become hardened to whatever it is uh, you know, they, they become hardened to violence they actually think less of being violent and that in in that way though that is um, not redeeming any of those qualities. It's actually uh, they're just getting worse and worse. Yes. So it's it is more interesting to reverse that. Um, is it interesting to reverse that off screen and just say, well, I've no longer got this disadvantage. Yeah. I suppose that if you are playing, what you'd really need to, to 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 give that some value, you'd have to have a player who played that disadvantage honestly in the first season and then bought it off yeah well, it could be done it could be done I mean, the the, uh, the darkness you're describing I was reading a, uh, a review of Chronicles of Prydain uh, w- which commented that um, this, this is the world that Ga- Game of Thrones is basically uh, um, subverting so this it, it, nobody gets flayed alive in Chronicles of Prydain it's not nobody gets raped it, it, this is um uh, you know, it, it, deep down, it's a wholesome message about growing up and doing the right thing, and and evil is vanquished in the end. Although evil is evil is done, good people are killed. Um, uh, so there's this, in a way, it's this sort of um, uh, it's back to basics, yeah, which is which is quite appealing. Anything else in the role playing space you do? Uh, I I guess. The simplest thing is when I, when I read Chronicles of Prydain, I am just reminded about many of the things that make really classical, old school role playing work well. Mm. And I'm just reminded, yeah, if when it when it is absolutely working at its very best, this is what it should be like. And so, if nothing else, just as a refresher course, it's the kind of thing that players and referees should be reading. Yeah, and from my point of view, I think that the I agree totally with everything you've said about sense of scale and the recurrence of characters. That um, that is probably part of why I'm interested in Beyond the Wall, as as I think it's an exceptional game amongst a whole load of Dungeons and Dragons retro clones. It really offers something special, not only for uh, getting up and running extremely quickly, but also forming a um, a community in a very short space of time and having the players with a real sense of yes we grew up together and now we're going out some adventures together and the focus of our the focus of our um, everything we think is good is actually home it's the village where we grew up and everything outside there is unknown and dangerous and that also manages to keep the scale small yes and uh, it is incredibly powerful so yeah, I mean that, that Dave Arneson, Gary Gygax, they did know what they were doing all those years ago with, with Dungeons and Dragons. And although it's it's all a cliche these days, and although in many ways it was clumsily done and it was more than half a war game, just this idea of starting with not knowing what you are doing and facing these terrifying foes that you just can't cope with because you're not up to it, and slowly but surely gaining in competence. Um, it's a very powerful narrative. Now, of course, no one, I think, would just say, oh, you should just play D&D out of the box. I don't think we'd find that very satisfying these days. But to tap into some of those very basic themes of figuring out who you are and gaining in status, gaining in wisdom, gaining in ability, it's an enormously satisfying way to play any game. And and it's easy to forget those things. We're done with the role-playing bit. I think so. Well then, I think uh, any final words you'd like to say, Tim? 
I just think the Chronicles of Pride are an absolutely beautiful series of books. And I think that anybody over the age of eight should read them. And uh, maybe they'll give you ideas for your role-playing games, or maybe you'll just have a, have a very, very pleasant read. But um, whether you're reading them for the first time or rediscovering them, you're in for a treat. Tim, thank you very much for uh, being part of the podcast. It's my uh, pleasure. really appreciate you, you being on. It's been lovely to talk about Pride End. And um, that's our show. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you've got comments, we'd love to hear them. We're on the web and on social media. Details at victorplasm.net. Until next time, bye. Is, uh, did you see the BBT coverage of the Pope lying in state? <laughs> <laughs> this one's going out to Liz. <laughs> anyway, um, so. <laughs>